What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Sound on with Kevin Cirilli. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Breaking news tonight. A Democrat-led a Democrat House committee moving a step closer to reviewing President Trump's taxes. This, as a district judge, rules in favor with the Democrats just within the last hour. Headlines crossing the Bloomberg terminal. Will Democrats prevail in getting President Trump's taxes? We find out. Plus, the White House moves to block Don McGahn from testifying in front of the House. We have one of... Don McGann's former colleagues with us in studio for the hour. Emily Miller is a Republican strategist and former communications director for House Majority Whip. And Josh Josh Galper is co-founder and partner of of the Trident DMG and the law firm Davis Goldberg and Galper, both with us uh, in studio for the hour, plus the latest on the U.S.-China trade talks, uh, as well as the situation of escalating tension in Iran. Before we get to a jam-packed show, though, we thought it was going to be a slow news day, but just within the last hour, if you have your Bloomberg terminal open, I mean, the headlines are flying fast and furious because we just got this headline within about five minutes before we come on air that Democrats are moving a step closer to seeing President Trump's tax records following a U.S. district judge ruling. Now, of course, ultimately, there's going to be appeals, but I want to break down Andrew Harris's report just that was filed at 455 tonight, uh, crossing the Bloomberg terminal now, that a Democrat-led House committee moved a step closer to reviewing President Donald Trump's tax information after a federal judge ruled U.S. lawmakers have the power to demand records from his accounting firms with me for the hour in studio an all-star panel both of their first time on the program emily miller republican strategist former communications director to the republican house majority whip and josh galper he is co-founder and a partner of the public relations firm trident dmg and the law firm davis goldberg and gulper so thank you both for being here emily i want to start with you will President Trump ultimately have no choice but to give up his tax records. No, absolutely not. I mean, Democrats in the House have no policy to run on. So they're just spending all their time on this nonsense. American people could care less about the president's taxes in previous years. They could care less about impeaching him. The economy is doing great. Businesses are doing great. Economy is doing well. This is just a bunch of uh, Josh is jumping up, literally jumping out of his chair. Yes, I am. Go ahead. Yes, I am. Okay, so 
Um, I think absolutely he's going to end up giving over those tax returns. We now have a, an opinion from Judge Mehta. I have not seen what the grounds were, but you know it's completely within the ambit of the judiciary and, and certainly with the, with Congress to ask for documents like this without having a, quote, specific legislative purpose. We have investigative committees throughout both houses uh, of Congress. This happens every day. Documents are turned over. Josh, but- you're a lawyer, right? Yes. Right. He yes. plays, he plays one on the radio. Charlie can confirm <laughs> this. Yes. But, so what's the next step? Because you mentioned the judge, the U.S. District Judge, Amit Mehta, in Washington on Monday, says the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee has authority to examine President Trump's personal and business records going back to 2011 but re- and rejected President Trump's claim that Congress wasn't entitled to the documents because they weren't intended for, here it comes, this phrase, we've heard a lot of it, quote-unquote, legitimate legislative purpose, end quote. So are they going to appeal? Does this go to the Supreme Court? Absolutely. They're they going to appeal, I, right? I mean, I, I think they're not yes. going to give up. They're, of course, going to go upstairs. And like so many other things that I bet we will talk about today, will wind up in the lap of the Supreme Court. Which uh, is a majority conservative, thanks to... Um, Don McGahn, he mentioned earlier. And, but I think we have a lot of hope that they're going to abide by the rule of law. All right. You mentioned Don McGahn. Did you see this, Em? I mean, I know you and Don used to work together. Yeah, we're good friends. And so what do you make of this, that the White House is moving to block Don McGahn from testifying before the House of Representatives? I mean, this has been the dominant discussion here inside of the Beltway all day, that the White House has moved to prevent former counsel Don McGahn from testifying before Congress, asserting broad immunity to compelled testimony uh, as these investigations continue. What do you well, I think this is obviously, I don't think this is a surprise to anyone. The White House is going to clamp down on anyone who, these, like I said, this, the minority Democrats in the House have nothing better to do than this nonsense the American people could care less about. They're not going to open up the books for the Democrats in Congress without a fight. Um, Don has left the White House. He's in the private sector now, but he's going to be under – now the Justice Department has come out with a decision that's saying this is right. The White House should reject the subpoena, and we will probably continue this fight. Um, Don McGahn has incredible integrity. He's not going to be – he's not he's not personally hiding anything. It's a matter of the executive branch and the legislative branch and who's the, got the most power. But, but, Josh, this is what I don't understand. I mean, to some extent, whether it's Bob Mueller, whether it's – Bill Barr, the attorney general, and now Don again. Why not just let him testify? Let him talk. I mean, it, it, it creates Absolutely. this notion in Congress. I mean, because if or that they're hiding something. Obviously. But would you, if it was your client, would you tell your client to just turn over uh, your your closest lawyer? I, I think I would have no legal grounds here to to assert. Um, that you can't turn those over. This happens every single day that these kinds of uh, documents are handed over and that White questions House are counsel. asked of, oh, absolutely, absolutely. When's the last time what, a White House counsel has been brought before Congress? We've never lived in a time like this, and we now have a report from the special counsel. We have oversight committee. Kevin. Well, no. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> I, <laughs> Kevin's I, literally yeah, pointing Kevin. at his own head no, to talk about the show. No, no, no. No, but I, but I, I do want to just kind of, peel back the onion a little bit because White House counsel Pat Cipollone uh, wrote Monday in a letter to House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler. We've heard a lot about Jerry Nadler. He's, of course, the Democrat from New York, saying, quote, because of constitutional immunity and in order to protect the prerogatives of the office of the presidency, the president has directed Mr. McGahn, Mr. McGahn not to appear at the committee's scheduled hearing 
on Tuesday later in the month. So, I mean, it really is a fascinating, fascinating day here in Washington as the jockeying continues on the political front in terms of the president's tax returns. These investigations are going to continue and how the White House is responding to the multiple investigations that are going on. Coming up, we're going to talk much more about the various investigations and what it means for policy. But especially what it means for trade policy. We also are going to check in with Congressman Mo Brooks, a Republican from Alabama, about the escalating tensions in Iran. Panel stays Emily Miller, a Republican strategist, as well as Josh Galper, co-founder and partner of public relations firm Trident DMG and the law firm Davis, Goldberg, and Galper. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. We've been following the ongoing U.S.-China trade talks, particularly since Friday's announcement that President Trump would sign an executive order restricting U.S. businesses from doing business with Huawei and ZTE, the Chinese state-backed telecommunications giants. Joining me in studio, Emily Miller, a Republican strategist, former communications director to the GOP House Majority Whip, also an insider in terms of Republican politics here inside of the Beltway in the Trump era. And Josh Galper, he is a Democrat strategist and co-founder and partner of the public relations firm Crisis PR firm Trident DMG and the law firm Davis Goldberg and Galper. Now, Josh, in terms of how the business community has reacted to this and the pressure that they are placing on this administration, it truly is on the issue of tariffs, a nonpartisan issue, no? Uh, well, not, not, not really, right? Um, the fact is, first of all, it starts with a people and business issue, and, and people care about businesses here. I think this has turned into a certain uh, nonpartisan issue as we've seen the damage done to businesses. You know, you're talking about protectionist policies versus policies that are open to trade and and business. And what I think the Trump administration has shown is that they're they're following the protectionist policy lead with a lot of incoherence. We're going back and forth here. He is he's done the right thing by lifting those tariffs because they were quite punishing to U.S. businesses. It was not true that we were collecting all of this money uh, and not at the expense of these uh, of the farmers and, and and others. The fact is, it was hurting people here in this country, and that's a problem and Republicans came came up and did the right thing as they're listening to their constituents. I want to unpackage this just a bit, Emily, because on the issue of national security, particularly as it relates to Huawei and ZTE, this is a nonpartisan issue. You know, last week I interviewed uh, Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat from Virginia, one of the top Democrats on the Senate Intelligence Committee, and he said, direct quote, stay the course end quote, when it comes to ZTE and Huawei for President Trump. Look, M, I don't got to tell you, Senator Warner and President Trump don't really see eye to eye on much. Well, I, I, all Americans agree we don't want the Chinese in our phones. They are spying on us. I mean, let's simplify this issue. Um, unpacking it means this company has, this technology company is enormous, wants space in the American sector. We have a lot of trade going back and forth with them. 
But we have to be careful. The Chinese are not our ally. I mean, we have economic ties with them, but they are spying on us. The Russians are spying on us. Others are spying on us. Just back for a minute on, on the trade deal, the tariffs, we've, as we're doing, I think you called it NAFTA 2.0, which yeah. is a good way to you say that new acronym. Yes. What's the real acronym? <laughs> USMCA. Yeah. They always say, whenever the US Republicans... Mexico like geography. Whenever they say that, I'm always, I always jump up because I think we're talking about the Marines, and, and then they add the A M, at the top. Respectfully, M, I mean, isn't this a president who knows a thing or two about branding and USMCA? But... I know, and that's what kills me. We had some major. But he does call it the greatest deal ever. What What does he call it? You brought up you brought up USMCA. Vice President Mike Pence. He was uh, appearing in Jacksonville, Florida, earlier uh, today, uh, talking about the USMCA. Take a listen to what Vice President Pence had to say. We believe it's absolutely essential that it get passed by the Congress, because it will also finally allow American workers and farmers to compete in this hemisphere on a level playing field. And if you dig deeper into this trade policy as a whole, you you cannot look, look, the president prefers bilateral trade negotiations, but you're getting a multilateral response. So what particularly happened in the last four days in particular is President Trump has extended and, and gotten some wiggle room on the tariffs of steel and aluminum as it relates to Canada and Mexico, which is a huge sigh of relief huge. For, the, huge. <laughs> for the Canadians and the Mexicans to, to release that. And it allows Republican support, Josh, in the Senate to get on board with USMCA because Senate uh, Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley, really a Republican, didn't want said you know you got to get rid of those tariffs or you're not going to have the Republican support in the from Senate. A farmer, Iowa. Yeah, yeah no, the, look. The, what do we need from the Senate? We need ratification of the treaty. So clearly he needed to make a move like this to gain that support. So I think there was a lot of politics in there for him to get his way at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, again, it's a sign of this incoherent strategy that we see from him to to try to create that perfect deal, which never seems to come into play. Well, but on that note, though, we wouldn't be in this position of actually making a better deal. NAFTA was always bad for America. We've gone through how many presidencies with NAFTA being a bad deal for America, with on both sides doing nothing. President Trump comes in, just shuts the whole thing down, tariffs up everyone, and then all of a sudden everybody's at the table, right? Oh, she says tariffs well. up everyone. But, but Josh, <laughs> if Democrats, because the, the, the forces in the House, the political landscape in the House is very different on NAFTA 2.0 or USMCA than it is in the Senate. And Democrats are saying that there's not enough worker protections, environmental of protections. Course. Are they going to risk, though, those working class, class voters that the former vice president Biden is going after if they don't ratify NAFTA 2.0? Uh, well, look, it, you know, there were concerns about NAFTA 1.0 in the same respect. And I think there's a lot of people who are saying that when you reopen the discussion and the negotiations, people want more. That's what happens when you, you negotiate a deal and throw it out to folks. So, so there's a lot of uh, heat that we hear about this discussion but at the, same, at the same time, are we really getting to a different place than we were with NAFTA 1.0, yet having gone through the dangers of a trade war, putting small businesses and people, Americans, at risk, at the, in, you know, for what? Uh, to return to, to the origin? Emily, I've got to ask you, I gotta ask you uh, privately, I was up on the Hill earlier today talking with some Republican staffers, and some of them privately are, are scratching their heads and they're saying, why – is the economic message about tariffs and hurting Americans and prices going up? Why is that the dominant narrative coming out of the White House as opposed to all of the other eco data that would indicate the economy is doing pretty well? Well, the 
the White House, the president does talk about the economy a lot, all the time. I mean, that is the message they're talking about. Obviously, the media reports that are saying this is bad and everyone is for free trade, which not everybody is. And that is a split in the Republican Party, obviously, between the White House and a lot of senators. And Democrats, too. And There's Democrats. a divide in Democrats. Yeah it's, yeah, it's not a straight party line on free trade. Um, but either way, we're at the table. We're going to have a better deal for Americans at the end of the day. The president's looking long term on this. He came in. He was he was the first pre- first person, first Republican that I know that ran on. We could close trade. I mean, this is this is what he like. He won Pennsylvania on this issue on steel and aluminum. He won Ohio. I mean, his the Rust Belt voted for him for what he's doing. And there's no it's no coincidence that former Vice President Joe Biden formally announcing mm. in Philadelphia, my neck of the woods, Philadelphia, where I grew up, uh, his his campaign. I mean, that is such a crucial state for Democrats if they want to win in 2020. Coming up, we're going to talk about 2020. But sticking on the trade topic, I do want to note that the Chinese have responded. They have called the president's executive orders, quote unquote, politically motivated and an abuse of export control measures. This coming from the Chinese Commerce uh, Department, they're essentially their Treasury's counterpart. Uh, last week, uh, when I spoke with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, I caught him just as he was coming out of the Senate hearing. Uh, he <laughs> Named said, that much? No, no but, it, but he said he's, he's still <laughs> going. Say, well go. I'm just kidding. I was in a gaggle. So last like, week, I was at this cocktail no, party of no, Mnuchin. It was, it was a Senate hearing. <laughs> Listen, Senate hearings are not cocktail parties. Just That's ask true. Josh. That's true. So, They're long. But yeah. he said that he was going to go over there to meet back to Beijing to meet with Vice Premier Liu Hua in order to continue the Chinese trade talks. And again, President Trump and President Xi Jinping are set to come face to face June 28th, June 29th in Osaka, Japan at the G20. Coming up, we check in with Congressman Mo Brooks. He's a Republican from Alabama. He's going to give us the latest on President Trump's policy with Iran. This, as the situation continues to escalate, panel stays. We also move to 2020. And what is with these abortion cases? Why are they suddenly popping up now? And what does it mean for 2020? Uh, That's coming up. You can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, and you are listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. President Trump has been commenting quite frequently, to be candid, over the past several days about the situation going on in Iran. Uh, and the situation there has accelerated in terms of how they are unfolding 
their rate in which they're enriching low-grade uranium fourfold. Uh, This means, essentially, uh, that their nuclear ambitions have not diminished since the president has withdrawn from the Iran nuclear disarmament deal. Take a listen to what President Trump said over the weekend in a taped interview that aired Sunday on Fox News. I ended the Iran nuclear deal. And actually, I must tell you, I had no idea it was going to be as strong as it was. It totally, the country is is devastated. I just don't want them to have nuclear weapons. And they can't be threatening us. And you know, with all of of everything that's going on, and I'm not one that believes, you know, I'm not somebody that wants to go into war. That was President Trump speaking uh, in an interview that aired on Sunday on Fox News. Joining us on the telephone line is Congressman Mo Brooks. He is a Republican representing Alabama. He is a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Congressman, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So what do you make of how the president has been handling the situation in Iran? Well, you're getting a lot of messages from the White House. Uh, I'm not sure how to best answer your question except to say this. Iran is a threat. They, over the decades, have seemed willing to sacrifice themselves if it means taking out the little Satan Israel or the great Satan, the United States of America. And if that is truly their ideology, which appears to be based on Islamic beliefs, then the normal kinds of deterrence, such as mutually assured destruction doctrine that has kept the United States and the Soviet Union, now Russia, United States and China, United States and North Korea, uh, out of a war posture, may not work with Iran. So that's the concern, is uh, their religious belief that suggests that they might consider it martyrdom uh, if they can take out the United States and or Israel, even if it means the destruction of Iran itself. That's I mean, scary. The, head, the headlines, Congressman, are absolutely remarkable. Uh, just the reports that have uh, uh, came in over the past several days that Iran has quadrupled quadrupled the production of enriched uranium. So why would the withdrawal from the Iran nuclear disarmament deal help to put pressure on Iran to stop with their nuclear ambitions? Well, unfortunately, the greatest leverage that we have, Barack Obama gave away when he gave the Iranians billions upon billions upon billions of dollars that had been kept from the Iranians. And the Iranians, in turn, have used that to bolster their economy on the one hand and in all likelihood also bolstering uh, their military capabilities, perhaps even to the point of bolstering their nuclear capability on the one hand and their missile delivery systems on the other. Um, So I I don't think the United States of America withdrawing from that agreement now uh, makes a lot of difference one way or the other, uh, quite frankly. I don't think that Iran was going to abide by the agreement. I don't think that Iran was abiding by the agreement. And the best leverage we had was that money that Iran so badly wanted, and Barack Obama gave it to him. So in terms of how the State Department, how the administration, how they are trying to pressure Iran uh, to act as a normal world actor, what is the long-term strategy here, and what do you and are you satisfied with how the administration is moving with Iran and trying to get them to, you know, knock this off? Short of war, we need to, as much as possible, put economic pressure on the Iranians. And the United States alone does not have the ability to do that. Certainly, we can be a part of that, 
but we need to get the European nations, we need to get the Asian nations to understand the threat that Iran poses uh, not only to the United States and not only to Israel, but perhaps also to Europe and perhaps also to various parts of Asia. If collectively the world were to put economic pressure on Iran, then I think you would see Iran become much more accommodating uh, on the one hand, or on the other hand, you might see economic circumstances deteriorate so much in Iran that there is another revolution, except this time the good guys, whatever there are in Iran, they win, and the existing regime is toppled. So that's got to be the number one focus. The number two focus has to be make sure that we have the capability of intercepting and downing any missiles that may be tipped with nuclear weapons, whether they be aimed at the United States of America or one of our allies. That's what our missile defense program is all about. And then number three, on the chance that Iran is deterred by a counterstrike, we must always have the capability to turn Iran into a sea of glass if Iran has first used nuclear weapons in an exchange with another nation. So meanwhile, Congressman Mo Brooks, a Republican from Alabama, joining us on the telephone line. He is a member of the House Armed Services Committee. We are talking about the latest reports regarding Iran, which has quadrupled its production of enriched uranium. Mark your calendar, July 7th. July 7th is the deadline for Europe for the Europeans to come up with the new terms for an agreement or deal with Iran. What is the message, Congressman, to Europe from the U.S.? We need to impress upon the Europeans how dangerous this situation is with Iran, particularly if the Iranians, as they appear to be, are motivated by their religious beliefs and are therefore willing to engage in martyrdom. That is a very dangerous concept. It is contrary to the mutually, mutually assured destruction doctrine that has kept worldwide peace, at least in, insofar as a nuclear exchange goes, since 1945. And we have to deal with this mindset that the Iranians say they have. And I'm hopeful that Europe will join us. I'm hopeful that a number of countries in Asia will join us. And with that economic pressure, we have a real chance at being successful in turning Iran into a peaceful nation. All right, Congressman, I know you got to run. I really appreciate you coming on the program. Let me ask you before I let you go, are you going to challenge uh, Senator Doug Jones when he's up for re-election for the Senate? No, sir. All right. We appreciate it. All right, Congressman Mo Brooks, I had to ask. I had to ask. Can't blame me. He is a congressman, a Republican from Alabama, joining us, a member of the House Armed Services Committee. We appreciate his time. Coming up, much more on the 2020 presidential race. Former Vice President Joe Biden making it official. He was back in my neck of the woods, Philadelphia. That's where his campaign headquarters is located. All-star panel breaks it down. You can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, and you are listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. One of my all-time favorite musical artists, Nat Kearney. Happy Monday, folks. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. It has been a busy 
busy day here in Washington. The headlines flying just moments before we came on air that a district judge has actually uh, ruled that the president does not have the authority to withhold some of these tax documents. That's a major win for the House Democrats who are pressing to get those documents. We are also, of course, carefully monitoring how all of this impacts the 2020 presidential campaign. Over the weekend, former Vice President Joe Biden, he made it official. I mean, it's been official for like months, but he made it official in Philadelphia where his campaign is headquartered, uh, officially launching that campaign. Joining me in studio, Emily Miller, a Republican strategist, former communications director for the House Majority Whip, knows everybody in Washington and Trump world. Josh Galper is co-founder and partner of public relations firm Trident DMG and the law firm Davis Goldberg and Galper. He is a Democratic strategist as well. And Josh, my understanding is that Bennett, your son, your oldest son, celebrated his bar mitzvah over the weekend. Mazel tov. Thank you. <laughs> was it fun? It was a lot of fun. He's now an adult in the eyes of, of our traditions, and, and we're very excited for him. All right, so what do you job. make of Biden's launch? Was it a better party than your son's bar mitzvah? <laughs> it, it, uh, Not to it, put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, it was no. bigger, and, and thank goodness ours was smaller, that's for sure. No, he had a great launch, uh, we, I think, um, Wasn't the, the launch to his, his, like, video? Uh, oh, well, no, he, he, he massive spoke. speech in Philadelphia. Gave, you, well, yes. I know that, but I'm saying, like, what is this new thing where you put a video up and you don't yeah. talk to anyone, and then two weeks later you launch? Like, it, it it's like an exploring thing. a launch with a launch of the launch, I know. But uh, Biden's uh, running. You, he's you, at the you top sort of the commit, polls. And you commit, absolutely. He's at the top of the polls by a lot. Uh, that's in national polls. Certainly things are a bit closer in the states. You know, and what about the other 22 Democrats that are running? Uh, is it 22? Um, <laughs> well, but, no, he would be 23. I think he's 23, right? Well, right now he's number one in terms of how he stands in the polls, True. of course. But he is doing, yes, uh, he's doing, I think, uh, a great job going right at Trump. Josh, take us behind the scenes. You've worked behind the scenes on a host of different campaigns. You've advised top-tier Democratic politicians for decades. Take us behind the scenes about the calculation that the Biden campaign is going to have to make in going directly after President Trump while also being sympathetic to not appearing like they're trying to get a coronation a la Hillary Clinton. Mm. It's, a, it's a great question. And that strategic decision has been made. I mean, it's clear from the way that he came out of the box with his video and uh, believing that the country wants somebody who's going to unify them and not divide them. I think that they surveyed the rest of the field, saw how people were actually really ignoring Trump and trying to run their own campaign, which can make sense in certain campaigns. And I think he saw, no, the moment here is to take Trump on directly. And I think proof that that is working is that other candidates are now stepping into the water to try to be more direct at going after Trump. Do you think that he'll take off the gloves in the debate? Will he have to? I mean, who poses the biggest threat for for Biden? So I think that there is a big question going on right now among the Democratic candidates about whether or not we should convert this primary into a circular firing squad. We've seen this on both sides through the years. Um, the question is, how, how do you create a circular firing squad out of two dozen people? Not also, this analogy that you're using is, like, gruesome. Okay, well, we, it, I, it I'm sorry, speaking from the Republican Party, we're loving this. Have you noticed? We've been saying <laughs> absolutely nothing. We like, felt the same way in 2016. I grew up in an Irish-Italian Catholic household, and, and 
firing, circular firing squad is not even something I've heard. And who gives you pause in the crowded Democratic field? Pete Buttigieg, Mayor Pete, Senator Warren, Senator Harris, who gives you pause? Frankly, Heaven, I cannot tell you who all is running for president in in the Democratic Party. There are so many of them. So they all give you Um, pause. The one that puts me over the deep end is Beto O'Rourke, of course. Of course. I just came back from a year working on the Cruz campaign in Texas. God bless Texas. And we won. Thank you very much, Texas voters. Um, But by a slim margin, I will concede. Um, And now, after doing six years of absolutely nothing in Congress, Beto O'Rourke, and losing a Senate race, Beto O'Rourke has now failed up again, is running for president. And then his whole run has been a complete failure, and he's getting nowhere. So what does he do? Relaunches the run, going on the View. So that well, I, I really hope he's the candidate us, so bad. Take us behind the scenes into the Cruz campaign when you realized the moment. What was the moment when you realized, oh no, Beto O'Rourke is going to make this thing close? It was pretty early on. I'll say probably really? in the spring. Why? Um, Why? Because it was the. It wasn't a race about Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke is so far left. No one, no one who actually has studied his policies, which is nobody who voted for him, wants that. They don't want to take down the walls in Texas. They don't want to take away the guns. But, but what it became was a national because they because the Democrats have their hair on fire about the success of President Trump. They wanted to go after President Trump in the midterms. They couldn't. So let's go after the the next biggest thing, which is the biggest red state and the senator who they dislike, Ted Cruz. And it became a national debate over over President Trump. I remember it had nothing to do with Beto O'Rourke. I believe it was Cruz. the first or second Texas debate. It was on a Friday night, and this goes to show you how much of a dork I am. I spent that night watching this in my apartment on my laptop, eating yeah. pizza, and I messaged you, being like, "If you could put a time capsule of American politics in a debate, it's this debate between Beto O'Rourke and and Senator Cruz." Look, as I recall, the Democrats did pretty well in the 2016 elections, and I, and I do think it's pretty tough to call anybody in the Democratic primary election right now a failure. Uh, it is too early. All right. We got we got less than two minutes, but th- this abortion uh, has really become a, a talk of the of the country, really. Why, Emily, without without going into sides, why is abortion suddenly such a hot topic? Well, it's wonderful. We, I, I, It's wonderful. And one of the biggest reasons that the far right, I would consider myself part of, supported President Trump for, for supported Trump for president is because he said, I'm going to put pro-life conservative judges on the Supreme Court when these openings came up. We all knew this was coming. And so Christians knew this was their chance to overturn Roe v. Wade. We have a chance. We've gotten two already on the court, hopefully a third. And this is the time that's going to happen. Josh, but, but Senator Collins thinks that there's a pro-choice uh, justice that's on the court that President Trump put on there, Justice Kavanaugh, it's who made mark. this commitment uh, back back in the day. But this is coming up because of 2020. It's all about politics, Kevin. And it is, it is definitely going to be something that is one of the many divisive issues uh, that the country's going to have a conversation about. Josh, Emily, Thank you both so much for coming on. Really, Great really show. appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.